We've been one of the faster growing markets in the country and also one of the most inclusive. We're top five in the country consistently for women and African-Americans in tech jobs. My favorite art of DJing is mashing up disparate tunes, genres, BPMs, and making them work together in surprising ways. What's great about GNO Wings, we're trying to do the similar thing, combining drum and bass and Bill Withers on one side, on the Gino Inc. side, getting the Southern Poverty Law Center and Americans for Prosperity together to drive criminal justice reform. Working in New Orleans today is what I call the cha-cha of progress. It's two steps forward, one step backwards every day. So it's not smooth and steady, but at the end of every week, you've made some progress. You just gotta sway your hips a little bit, make it a little sexy, and you know, it's, it's a dance of economic development. Welcome to the Blue Economy Primer, a New Orleans-based podcast where you learn from the experts, the practical tools and solution sets that will empower your community to adapt and thrive in a new blue era of rising seas and economic discontinuity. Special thanks to the Dan Lucas Memorial Foundation and the Pontchartrain Conservancy for their financial and institutional support of Deep Blue Academy's education and research initiatives. Today, we are speaking with a New Orleans prodigal son who is a regional and national economic development and disaster recovery icon. His international small business development leadership and long list of national and regional awards recognizing his work in Silicon Valley, New York City, and New Orleans speaks to his unparalleled abilities as a visionary who can execute real change under the most challenging of circumstances. Running Mayor Bloomberg's post-9-11 small business program, as well as leading Louisiana's quarter-billion-dollar Katrina small business recovery program, he has distinguished himself as an unstoppable force for positive change and a damn good DJ to boot. Michael, thank you so much for joining us on the Blue Economy Primer. Can you please introduce yourself to our audience? Yeah, th- thanks so much. It's, it's great to be here, uh, Michael Hecton. I think I should leave right now because, <laughs> Greg, that was... I, anything that I say or do right now is going to take away from those unearned and uh, inflated accolades. So can we... Can we hit stop, please? <laughs> Can you just tell us a little bit about uh, where you work and what you're up to? So um, I'm, I work at a Greater New Orleans, Inc. It's the economic development uh, nonprofit for, for the region. Um, the organization itself has been around for a long time, about 120 years, but was rebranded uh, Greater New Orleans, Inc. Uh, 2004, right before Katrina. Uh, and then I joined um, in 2008. I came back to New Orleans 2005, 2006, Worked for the state doing the Katrina program for Governor Blanco for a couple of years, and then joined uh, GNO Inc. Uh, 15 years ago. GNO Inc. has a broad-reaching agenda that we could talk about for hours, and today we're going to try to focus on elements related to the blue economy and blue tech development. So, could you give us an overview of your overall mission at GNO Inc. and your theory of change, p- particularly for our listeners joining us from other parts of the world? Yeah. So GNO Inc. is. Um, a little bit different than a typical economic development organization in that we don't just do typical economic development work, which is business attraction and retention. We spend probably the the, the bulk of our resources on what we call uh, business environment. And so that's public policy, that's workforce, that's key asset development like the airport, and it's uh, even branding. And so that makes us a little bit broader. And so our, our mission, uh, the way we describe what we do is actually um, – broader than a typical economic development organization. Our mission is to create a thriving economy and an excellent quality of life for everyone. So a thriving economy, that's kind of traditional economic development. 
an excellent quality of life, which could involve everything from education to healthcare to uh, public amenities, um, is a little bit broader. And then for everyone is an intentional statement of inclusivity, recognizing that a society and an economy that's not maximizing opportunity for all of its citizens is is, is obviously going to sub-optimize. As it relates to the blue economy, what does the blue economy mean to you and the GNO Inc. mission in Southeast Louisiana? It is, uh, it's both an existential issue and an opportunity. Um, you know, existentially, New Orleans is, is a, a fantastic city and a terrible place. Uh, we exist on what I believe, and you can tell me if, if I'm right about this, uh, Greg, but I think we are on the youngest Deltaic plane in the world in terms of actually having a settled population. I think that parts of uh, where New Orleans sits are less than a thousand years old uh, geologically. And so understanding how to live with nature is a matter of, of survival. At the same time, the challenges that we're dealing with here, with water, with other uh, natural events, and frankly, with other more human uh, issues are ones that are experienced around the country and around the world. And so we believe that if we can understand how to drive a blue economy that uh, allows us to live with nature, preserve the environment, and at the same time, create jobs and wealth, we're creating a model that we can um, actually export to others and make money on. And that sounds like a bunch of nice, as I guess as Sarah Palin would say, hopey changey stuff. But let me kind of make it more concrete. The Dutch drive about 4% of their GDP by selling uh, their water management technology through engineering, through consulting, through building. And so we think that we can basically become the Dutch of North America, but, you know, but with better food. Yeah. Well, those are the touchstones of the things that we're interested in at yeah. uh, Deep Blue Institute. So that's that's it's wonderful to hear that, and the reason why we we wanted to make sure that we have a uh, a chat with you. Now it's a little unfortunate, as you know, UC Berkeley grad. Yeah. I have to point out that <laughs> uh, do, yeah. you were uh, you were only able to go to the second best school in the Bay Area. Mm, I've done fine though. You, you I think have. You seem to really muddle through. Well, I think the, I think that what this points out is that <laughs> you know people make too much of where you go to school. At the end of the day, um, hard work and perseverance can overcome almost anything. That's great to hear, and you're yeah. cl- you're clear an example yeah. of that. But yeah. seriously, you know that means that you have a deep understanding of both the Silicon Valley startup scene yeah. as well as the history of our local startup scene. In episode one, uh, we were talking to Tim Williamson here about the birth of our local startup mm-hmm. ecosystem. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're seeing in terms of how the innovation ecosystem has been developing here in New Orleans and across the Louisiana estuary region? So, you know, I give Tim a lot of credit for what he and his happy warriors did now, I guess about 20 years ago, really pre-Katrina. They thought that they could reignite a tradition of entrepreneurship in New Orleans uh, and they did so. And, and I say reignite because New Orleans has always been an innovative place. It's had to have been because it's a difficult place to live. But some of the most important inventions in the history of the world have come out of New Orleans. For example, the Higgins boat that saved the world during World War II. So when Tim started Idea Village with Trust Your Crazy Idea, he had to create a culture that would come to not only accept but celebrate innovation, entrepreneurship, and risk-taking. And I think that uh, they did a good job with that. That was the first phase. The second phase occurred, I would argue, or began in 2021, 2021, when we had a series of exits. And it was during that time when we had a series of exits that ended up totaling over $2 billion of of total uh, value, including, of course, Lucid, 
which was our first unicorn at 1.1 billion, uh, Level Set, Turbo Squid, and others. Uh, and those collectively returned to the ecosystem um, close to a billion dollars of, of cash, effectively, to the owners, to the employees, and to the to the investors. So I think that started the second stage where we uh, had now been validated. Uh, there'd been one turn of the flywheel. And so now I think we're in a stage where we're trying to now replicate that success. It's going to be easier than before, although it's never never easy to be an entrepreneur, but also to try to understand as we try to mature our ecosystem, where can we really get critical mass? What are we really going to be great at? There's a very strong argument to be made that it should be in clean tech, at least on paper, for two reasons, which I'll put out. One is that we've done well in tech. We've been one of the faster growing markets in the country and also one of the most inclusive. We're top five in the country consistently for women and African-Americans in tech jobs, which is largely because we started doing it 100 years after two white guys in a garage in Palo Alto. But then in terms of the clean part, you know, that's obviously something that is our lived experience every day is living with the environment and trying to understand how to balance the economy and the environment. So as a specific example of that, Geno Inc. is heading a project now uh, that we just won a $75 million grant on called H to the Future, which is about uh, greening the production of hydrogen. And you might say, why does that matter? It matters because hydrogen is an ingredient, a feedstock for most petrochemical and industrial processes. And so if we can create a clean hydrogen molecule, instead of one created by uh, cracking or breaking up natural gas, then we can maintain our industrial jobs, which are so important to us and to the country, but we can reduce carbon emissions by up to 70%. And the technologies involved in that, like better electrolyzers, uh, better wind turbines to power the electrolyzers, better ways of utilizing hydrogen as a feedstock or as a fuel, for example, like e-methanol, these are the types of technologies where I think Louisiana has a strong birthright brand and use case altogether. As it particularly relates to uh, the nexus of the startup community that we have here that's led by initiatives like Idea Village, Propeller, Revelry Revel, 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 Labs. It is hard to say it a little bit, to say, too. Yeah. Call it, I know it's called Rubbery Labs. That's rubbery easier. Labs. Rubbery yeah, Labs. Rubbery I'm Labs. Sure, that's I'm, by Gerard. I'm sure, I'm, yeah, I'm sure he would appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, any observations or aspirations for the region in that sort of nexus with those existing organizations? You know, I guess it's two. To the positive, um, I think we've got a great bench, and I would put up our people pound for pound against anybody in the country. The flip side of it, which we have to recognize, is that our bench is thin. Uh, we don't have the critical mass of, of people uh, or of capital uh, or of companies, which are really critical as beta customers and mentors that other places have that, you know, um, you know, an Austin or a Nashville today, let alone, you know, a Silicon Valley or a Boston. And so, um, it's harder for us to get things going because we don't have as much intrinsic momentum. And also to some degree, building the startup ecosystem here is like building a sandcastle at the seashore while the tide is coming in. A great example of that is last week we had uh, an exit, of a company that started at Tulane called uh, Fluence Technologies. And they're an energy company that has a technology around cleaner ways of measuring, monitoring, piping, and, and uh, process technology. But they were in Houston when they were sold. They started here. They had to leave. And so um, there'll be some benefit back to this ecosystem and some money comes back and some validation. But the point is that they were you know, a child that left the house 
and got married. It doesn't visit that often. Mm-hmm. And so we are going to be in a bit of a chicken and egg situation until we get enough companies that stay and stick to help create critical mass like companies don't have to go to another market to get the capital or customers that they need. So what do you think is the solution or the pathway to getting that kind of support? I think there are a bunch of things that have to happen at once. And to some degree, you can look at a place that has evolved, like in Austin, and say, well, how did they do it? I mean, on paper, if you looked at Austin and Baton Rouge in the 70s, you would put your money on Baton Rouge. It had the petrochemical industry. It had a uh, a huge university. Um, it was arguably a more successful city. But a few things have happened in in Austin. Um, one is uh, UT as a university has just been a more productive university over time in terms of the quality, in terms of commercialized research, uh, commercialized technology, uh, and that allowed to start companies like Texas Instruments. The second is that there was a quality of life and a culture there that attracted people. That was buoyed by things like Austin City Limits and South by Southwest that created a place that people wanted to stay. And then finally, as a state, there were things that the state did, like having zero corporate income tax that allowed or encouraged companies to stay there. And so they had some things in place that over time led to the critical mass building. And then they got a couple of breaks like you know Michael Dell, and here we are today. So in our market here, we have to control the things we can control, which means working on quality of life, crime and infrastructure, state tax structure, uh, ensure we maintain our incentives, and then hope and wait to have that Dell moment. And also continue to nurture our universities, whether it's Tulane, uh, continuing to get better and better, uh, or one of our schools like UNO or Southeastern or LSU, really stepping up and becoming the SMU, the, the tech school or, or the UT. So, you know, there are a number of ingredients, and um, I think Tim would agree and others would agree, it's a generational project. It's not a it's not a one-year and it's not even a 10-year. Mm-hmm. Now, now, you mentioned the uh, hydrogen project, which is really exciting. What about some earlier stage stuff that I believe are some critical technologies like carbon sequestration, carbon credit markets, marine carbon dioxide removal, and dealing with the harmful algae bloom in the uh, Gulf? Would, are those on your radar? Yeah. I mean, th- those are all on our radar. The one that is most prominent is uh, CCUS because it's just so prominent right now. I had a, an attorney involved in carbon capture, use and sequestration, and she said that there are potentially $30 billion worth of carbon capture projects on the books now in Louisiana. That might not all happen, but there's that much interest. And the reason is twofold. One is uh, obviously companies need to do something to meet their ESG and portfolio goals. You know, these are the exons of the energies of the world. And carbon capture even though we are involved in green hydrogen, carbon capture, which is blue hydrogen, is just a its a technology of today. It's already happening. It's easier to do. It's much less expensive. The second is that the geology of Louisiana is uniquely applicable for, for carbon capture and sequestration because we have all these formations, subterranean, all these old salt and oil mines. And I was talking to an oil executive yesterday who said they're very interested in doing offshore uh, CCUS where they can basically use carbon for um, enhanced oil recovery. So you're simultaneously injecting the carbon thousands of feet underground offshore. And at the same time, you're getting up residual oil deposits that are just kind of sitting there unused. And so they see that as a as, as a double win. Mm-hmm. 
So no, Louisiana should be a leader in, in carbon capture. We have two challenges with that. There are folks who are uh, strictly anti-hydrocarbon who don't like carbon capture technologies because it makes hydro they make hydrocarbons less bad, <laughs> effectively extending their shelf life yeah. in the world. Ironic, but I understand it in kind of a twisted Machiavellian way. Mm-hmm. And then you have other people who just have concerns about its safety. And it's kind of the same conversation that we were having about fracking a number of years ago. Uh, and so those, those issues of kind of safety and not in my backyard, frankly, mm-hmm. have to be addressed. Sure. And I want to remind our listeners that when you visit the webpage for Michael's podcast episode, we'll have lots of links, definitions, and references for things like CCUS or carbon capture utilization and storage. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about your return to Louisiana story and what it was like to get the call to lead the Louisiana Post-Katrina Small Business Development coming off of that uh, post-9-11 recovery work in New York City. <laughs> That's a strange story. So when my wife and I left San Francisco in 2001 and I got out of the restaurant business there, um, shout out to Foreign Cinema, just named one of the top 10 restaurants of the past 40 years in San Francisco. I've so been there. It's a great place. Very proud of that. Yeah. We went around the country in a, uh, we traded in our hipster GTI for a Volkswagen Westphalia camper. And we went around the country for about nine weeks, 15,000 miles. And when we came through New Orleans, my wife said, we should move to New Orleans. It's the only place in America you actually know where you are. I explained to her, that's because it's not America, baby. It's because it's the Caribbean. You are, New Orleans is the northernmost city in the Caribbean. And you might say like Cartagena. You know, and, and Colombia is the southernmost and everything else is in between. But I said, what am I going to do in New Orleans? You know, I don't, I'm not going to run the family business. I'm not a lawyer. You know, there's nothing else to do here. So uh, I don't know. So we ended up back in New York after a brief stint in Barbados in the Caribbean, ironically. And I ended up working for Bloomberg, running his post 11 program. Was doing that for a couple of years when Katrina hit. Interestingly, I was at Burning Man when Katrina hit. I still remember all it. I was in the, you know, Reno airport, which is depressing to begin with. And I'm looking up and I'm seeing New Orleans, which is where my family's from. I'm thinking, what is going on here? And so then got back and some folks from the state came up to see us to understand how New York City had access CDBG funds and worked with HUD to get funding for small businesses post 9-11. And I kind of let slip in that, that my ancestral original city in America was Donisonville best city ever built on the wrong side of the river. And three weeks later, I was on the stairs of the state capitol with Governor Blanco announcing this quarter billion dollar program that I had no idea how we were going to run or what it was going to be. But it was just, but ironically, it was it was Katrina that created that that work opportunity for me and, and for our family now, you know, 15, 16 years ago. Amazing. Well, uh, we're certainly better for it. So, yeah. so much of the economic development conversation in Louisiana inevitably does touch on issues of equity and more opportunity for historically underserved communities. Do you think that these blue economy solution sets hold particular potential or opportunities to engage and empower those communities? I do. And I'll tell you why. So one, it can't be taken for granted because, for example, if you look at traditional oil and gas Oil and gas jobs have been uh, only held, I think, 29% by minorities compared to over 50% minority participation in hospitality jobs, which are are obviously lower paying. So you have to kind of, you can't just say it's going to happen naturally. However, if you look at what we've been able to pull off in technology, where by working with programs like Operation Spark, uh, working with our HBCUs, uh, like Xavier and Dillard and Suno, 
working with our two-year schools like Delgado and Nunez, as, as well as our four-year schools like UNO, Southeastern, we've been able to drive significant, not just minority, but also female participation. So, so you, know, you can do it. And so we're approaching our projects like H to the Future about blue hydrogen, green hydrogen, with the same framework. Uh, we have programs that are structured with our HBCUs. We're working with the Urban League. We're working with the Louisiana Chamber of Commerce Foundation, which is about minority business participation. We're working with the Louisiana Par- uh, Parole Project to create jobs for returning citizens. And because of the precedent in tech, I fully expect that we're going to be able to drive opportunities for minorities, for rural populations, for people displaced from these disjunction in the energy markets and do well in that regard. In fact, I was talking earlier today with Quentin Taylor, who um, runs River Parish's Community College, and he's very excited about a new program we have there called Project Power, uh, which is basically taking all their process technology skills and applying them now to offshore wind and solar and bio. And if you think about it, the skills are not that different. Process technology, welding, doing big things in deep water. And so I know it's very easy to give lip service to it, but I just think that precedent says that we are going to be able to make this inclusive. What are some favorite key benchmarks or statistics that crystallize the Gulf Coast climate crisis for you, perhaps related to the now inevitable impacts we'll see on coastal communities around the world? You know, the 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 numbers tell one story. And, you know, the most infamous one is the football field today being lost to coastal erosion. But I think it's actually, those numbers have been much less impactful on me than the qualitative experience of uh, driving down into the bayou, of taking a Cessna up uh, above the marshes, about talking to people who have been living and hunting uh, in the, the bayou or fishing the bayou for uh, their entire lives, and understanding that what you're seeing is is changes to the physical environment, changes to the geography happening almost in real time. That's extremely visceral and impactful. And once you, I think for me, the moment, frankly, was I was on my first seaplane ride at a southern seaplane down in Plaquemine, and we were going down, passed over Pilot Town, went out over the Gulf. And then the plane just did a lazy 180 and it turned around and immediately I was presented with the Gulf, Barataria Bay, and then the Superdome. You know, it was like those old New Yorker, you know, covers on the magazine where it was like New York City, Atlantic Ocean, Russia. And you realize that um, even sitting here right now in on St. Charles Avenue, we are in a coastal location. And I think that's where it really came home to me that there is um, immense vulnerability and subsidence combined with sea level rise means that we are going to have to you know, adapt. Other communities are coming to us now because they know that we're dealing with this. The, the, the experience for me that really drove home the idea that we have something special where we can switch from being victims of disaster to the masters of disaster was a few years ago, I look on my phone and... Uh, all I see at two o'clock is Iraq boardroom. I say, Iraq boardroom. So I go to the boardroom at two o'clock and there's some Iraqis in there and they give me their cards and the cards were had gold on them and that means you're important. And um, there was a translator 
And they wanted us to talk to them about how we were going about restoring our Delta. They wanted to talk about diversions. They wanted to talk about our levee systems and just understand how we were, our, our, our approach to hydrology in general, as well as the human element. And as um, I understood, as I, we asked the, the translator what this was about and what she explained was that uh, Saddam Hussein, in order to punish the people who were against him, I guess uh, Hussein was a, a Sunni. And he wanted to punish the Shia tribes who were against him. Um, and I apologize if I got that wrong, but I think that that's right. And uh, some of these uh, Sunni who were against him uh, were living down in the marsh where the Tigris and Euphrates came together uh, in Mesopotamia. And so what he did is that he dammed the rivers and basically turned the marshland. Do you know the story? Yeah, well, that's they actually have floating communities. There. Yeah. And so yeah. he turned that into a yeah. parking lot yeah. as a way of punishing them economically and socially. And so they wanted to restore Mesopotamia. I started thinking about that, and I'm not a particularly good Jew, but I started thinking back about Bible studies, and I said, oh, wait a minute, Mes- I was like, that's the Garden of Eden. I mean, that's where civilization began. And so I said, that's what I realized, that our reputation could achieve biblical proportions. Uh, if we had people coming, asking us how to restore the Garden of Eden, then we had relevant <laughs> experience, relevant technology, and I said, I think we can sell this thing. Absolutely. So what do you think of the obstacles or else what are some elements or resources that would accelerate the rapid deployment or scaling of proven ocean and climate technologies for coastal communities and island nations? I would argue that the the biggest impediment is wrongheaded political approaches because it's not an issue of money. You know, we're about to mint a $1 trillion coin here to get us out of our debt crisis. So it's not money. I'm kind of kidding. Um, and I don't really know that it's technology or ideas because I feel like there, there, there are a lot of resources being thrown at this and they're not all going to be right, but it's obviously a growing field. But when you have people who are extreme on either side, either climate deniers who say the whole thing is a tinfoil hat hoax, it's just drill, baby, drill. Or on the other side, folks who want to just shut down industry and take away gas stoves uh, and stop production of all plastics tomorrow. Those kind of unrealistic, ideologically driven viewpoints are are polarizing, counterproductive, and they tend to prevent constructive action. And so I think what you can see in Louisiana is the opposite approach. Uh, Here in Louisiana, we are now leading in the Gulf South with our coastal master plan and our climate action plan. We are establishing ourselves as the hub for offshore wind for the whole country, with our GNO Wind Alliance having over 250 members. And I think a lot of the credit for that goes to everybody in Louisiana, including the governor, recognizing that alternative energy, energy transition, clean tech, offshore wind, green hydrogen, these technologies operate at the confluence of the economy and the environment. They're not at the exclusion of either of them. And as a result, there's widespread support because ultimately these are economic as well as environmental opportunities. And so I think that if we can frame these opportunities for the country as ones that are reasonable, balanced, evolutionary as opposed to radical, and that are going to both preserve the environment and preserve and or create jobs in a real way, not just in a, you know, in a, in a, in a performer lip service way, I think we can continue to make progress. But the moment that people are asked to make sacrifices that they think are beyond the benefit or where there's just a lack of trust because 
of such a zero sum approach, you know, we get stuck against. But so again, oddly enough, I think Louisiana over the past five years or so has really been a model. You know, we, we passed the coastal master plan with unanimous support. Uh, we've got Bayou oil and gas Republicans supporting offshore wind, writing the legislation. H to the future had support of 25 organizations across the south of the state, uh, from very blue New Orleans to very red, you know, Lafayette. And so finding the confluence of the moral and the material, that's, that's the secret. Aside from, obviously, the great work that GNO Inc. is doing in the field, what do you see as some of our most promising regional standout individuals or organizations that are playing a role in navigating those, those impacts and those opportunities? Well, there's, there's so many to call out. I think, again, I want to give credit to the governor and all of his people at, at, at CPRA and on his climate task force, the whole group that's involved in the HALO application for the hydrogen hub with Oklahoma and Arkansas. They've been very politically deft, I think, at this, both in dealing with D.C. and, and, and here. Locally, the universities have been outstanding. LSU, UL Lafayette, uh, UNO. Nickel State, uh, Tulane, Southeastern, all of these schools have really been leaning into environmental management and clean technology. They understand the opportunity and they're putting resources into it. Um, the business community and particularly the old line uh, energy community has been incredibly proactive on this. So you have companies like Edison Schwest, like Gulf Island Fabrication. Uh, these are some of the most kind of old line traditional energy construction and service companies in in the country, yet they're trying to lead now on this. I mean, Gulf Island Fabrication built the windmills in Rhode Island. Uh, Edison Schwest is building the first Jones Act compatible uh, crew vessel for for windmills. So they've been excellent in all of this. Frankly, the media has really gotten it and has really been a big supporter, so they're driving it. And so all in all, I mean, I think that the vast majority of the population of this state, at least, understands that one, energy evolution is happening. It's not going to stop. Two, that we need an all-of-the-above strategy, which is lower carbon fossil fuels, LNG to save the world from Russia, but also alternative technologies. And that three, that Louisiana can be a once-in-future energy state. So everybody together, and this is a very different environment than Texas, for example, where Houston is fighting against the, the governor on this. It's a much more divisive environment. Or even Florida, where you know, you're not going to see any offshore windmills off the coast of Florida because somehow they're ugly, even though I think they're like sculptures, you know, they're like mobiles. But so I would be if I were to point out one group that was particularly outstanding, I would be doing it. Uh, I'd be remiss in not mentioning everybody else. I think the you know risk of sounding kind of um, like I'm just putting out bromides. Everybody in Louisiana has been pretty remarkable on this. Pretty good. That's yeah. great to hear. Great to hear. So I mentioned that you're a DJ, uh, performing as DJ El Camino. Yes. Uh, so, yes, yes, that's true. Uh, I know whenever I hear that, I think of the D as development. Do you do you experience that? And any interesting parallels or synergies between your track mixing abilities and the challenges of DJing these disparate issues, sectors, and genres of complex urban planning and regional Ooh, development? I like this. Well, first of all, let's point out that the El Camino was the original hybrid. Front is like a car, back is like a truck. Front is where you drive, the crook. <laughs> so look, I think that, yeah, I mean, <laughs> now that you're saying it, what's my favorite art of DJing is mashing up disparate tunes, genres, 
BPMs and making them work together in surprising ways. That is the fun. Uh, the last track I produced, I did a drum and bass version of Bill Withers' No Sunshine. That's fun to do. And what's great about Gino Inc. is we're trying to do similar things. You're right, to take disparate strands and bring them together in surprising ways that lead to pleasing results. So, for example, combining drum and bass and Bill Withers on one side, on the Gino Inc. side, getting the Southern Poverty Law Center and Americans for Prosperity together to drive criminal justice reform. So, okay, I don't know where you were going. You took me there. I'm there. I'll, I'll, I'll take that one. Are there any other GNO joint programs or initiatives that you'd like to highlight that we haven't had a chance to get to? Yeah, I mean, boy, there, there, there's just so many, but we're, we're doing a lot of work now in trying to build the music economy here with something called Gnome, the New Orleans uh, Music Economy. Uh, I'm very proud of the growth of our economic mobility programs like Wise Women. Uh, it's a STEM program for uh, HBCU uh, women. In general, our GNOU programs, which are our demand-driven workforce programs, continue to grow. We uh, are now in our fourth, fourth cohort of our mechatronics program with Delgado, Nunez, and NTCC, as well as uh, Latrum and... Zatarans and Elmer. Wow, it's a lot going on. Yeah, there, there, there's there's a lot of stuff that we're excited about. Please about the airport. Uh, I think that we're going to have an Air France flight within a couple of years. And frankly, I'll end with this: is the work that we've done with the Nola Coalition, which is nothing we've ever played in before. But the fact that this idea of us bringing together a coalition to create a safer city for our kids and everyone has now grown to over 500 organizations with total diversity of race, of gender, of geography, of politics. It's very encouraging. And it shows that if you give New Orleanians a vessel in which to pour their energy and time and talent and point that vessel in a positive direction, it becomes a Noah's Ark of possibility. That's awesome, here. Michael. Well, congratulations on all that. So what about you? What's next for Michael? Uh, what are you most excited about in your personal or professional journey coming up? I think probably this DJ gig I got tonight because <laughs> my, my my brother is opening up a co-working space out on the Greenway and uh, and uh, he's got me set to, uh, to play for it. And I'm proud of him because he's been... Uh, building stuff around the city, great. Um, and uh, and then Mardi Gras, and then you know your brother's an architect, right? Yeah, architect okay. and developer. Yeah. Um, I'll never complain about being busy because it's my uh, it's my happy, relaxed place. And so we continue to be very busy. We've got an amazing team at GNO Inc., and we're just going to keep fighting. It's what I'll end with this: working in New Orleans today is what I call the cha cha of progress. It's two steps forward, one step backwards every day. So it's not smooth and steady. But at the end of every week, you've made some progress. You just got to sway your hips a little bit, make it a little sexy. And, you know, it's, it's a dance of economic development. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been a pleasure to speak thank with you. you. Thanks, and I uh, look forward to future conversations. Awesome. Thanks for all you do. Go Cardinals. Thank you for joining us on the Blue Economy Primer. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to visit our webpage at www.deepblue.academy, where you can find all of our available episodes as well as access to important links and supporting information about today's conversation. From there, you can also send us your comments or suggestions for potential guests and topics, get more information about our community engagement programs, and join our mailing list, as well as make a much-appreciated tax-deductible donation to support our nonprofit education and research initiatives. Thanks again to the Dan Lucas Memorial Foundation and the Pontchartrain Conservancy for their critical financial and institutional support. Until next time, when we meet again, 
on the ever-expanding horizon of the blue economy.